you got your Bible or your mobile device, I'd encourage you to open it up to 2 Corinthians. We're going to be starting in chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to bring this out and let it stand here all morning so you wonder what it's for. So this morning, I want to talk about the ministry of reconciliation. And over the last several weeks, we've been going through this series called Mosaic, which has been talking about the community of the church and what it looks like for, for all the diverse age groups, people groups that are involved, from singles to marrieds to parents to empty nesters to uh, retirees and so on and so forth. And then next week, we're going to begin a new series about the book of Acts, where we're looking now, okay, what can the community of the church and all its diverse parts, how can that look and function when it's set on fire through the acts of the Holy Spirit? And so this morning, though, are we ringing? Um, can notch out some of the low pass if we need to on that. Um, so been talking about the ministry of reconciliation, because I believe that the church cannot fully be unleashed into the Holy Spirit's movement and power until we understand what it means first to be reconciled to God through the person of Jesus Christ on the cross and then to each other. But I just believe we'll always be capped and never able to fully engage into what the Spirit has for us. So let's look this morning at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. These are the words of Paul. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. I was born into a Christian family. I think we got a picture. There we are. Look at that. This was, you can tell the year was 1986, not only because of the fashion, but because down in the lower left corner, you may not be able to see, there's an Olin Mills stamp says 86, Olin Mills 86. Does anybody have an Olin Mills portrait hanging on your wall at home or multiple? Praise God, that's how we documented our lives before Instagram. Um, So here you see my dad, my mom, that's me in the snazzy Hawaiian shirt. No, you may not borrow it. My baby brother, Joel and Melody. And you've seen all five of us running around this joint. We're very involved in what's going on. So I was born into a Christian family. My parents were involved in church planning and music ministry, and I was at the church a lot. I would say between Sunday morning church, Sunday night church, Wednesday night church, children's programming, VBS, teen programming, summer camp, winter camp, fall camp, spring camp, family camp, missions trips, you name it. We probably averaged, I would say, church attendance of 12, 15 times a month maybe. And you think that's not very much. I'm like, well, it seemed like a lot, but in some ways it didn't because how does the body of Christ, how do you build that true mosaic community if you're not involved in each other's lives? How do you feel like you're connected somewhere spiritually at a place if you only see each other a few times a month? But that's a different story. Um, There are a few challenges, I think, in my life along the way. Grew up in the church and loved it. Was involved in children's leadership and teen leadership and college leadership. Um, And yet there was kind of a parallel story, I think, that ran through parts of that. And I'd like to share just a little bit of that this morning, just a glimpse, um, and to kind of 
the other side of me, I guess. So five years old, was molested by a neighbor down the street, teenage boy, and I was afraid of him, enough so that even as we were talking about our stories here a few weeks ago as a family, my mom reminded me it was about a year after the event before I had talked to my parents about it. And it was, it had been a year of kind of stewing in shame and guilt and wondering how much of that had I been compliant and how much of that was my idea or curiosity or whatever the case was at five. Um, you know, and unfortunately, the stats show, I was talking to a, to a friend earlier this week, that in America, one in seven children are victims of sexual abuse, and only one in three of those will ever tell anyone about it. And so this is a reality, you know, and, and I wish that it was a rarity, but I was just, it was part of my story, and yes, he was convicted, and yes, I went to Christian counseling, but there was still this little bit of, of this identity, I feel like, issue going on. Allie talked a couple months ago about guilt and shame, and she said that, she, that guilt is feeling bad about something you've done, but shame is feeling bad about who you are. And that's what the enemy does. He takes what we've done or what we've been victims of or been exposed to, and he heaps that on and says, no, that's who you are. You are the sum of your experiences. And so it shaped my identity. Fast forward a few years, 12 years old. Dad left home for the first time for rehab. And over the next several months, he was in and out of drug rehabilitation, alcohol rehabilitation, AANA halfway houses, and mom set an ultimatum and said, you need to stay clean or you need to leave. Three days later, he came home intoxicated. So that was the last time he lived with us through our childhood. And at 12 or 13, and me being the eldest child, I already had an overinflated sense of responsibility. And I felt like somehow my dad's failures and shortcomings were mine, my fault. It's like, maybe if I could have just been a better boy, this wouldn't have happened. Or maybe if I could have seen the sign somehow coming, I could have prevented this from happening. And, and, and on top of that, being a boy, I felt like, okay, I'm the oldest. Now I need to step up and be the man of the house in his absence, regardless of my mom telling me, no, just be a kid, be a kid. This is not your role. But I felt like I needed to step up. And what that meant for me, I needed to be strong, couldn't show weakness, couldn't show vulnerability. And so in the, all the wisdom and logic of a 12, 13-year-old boy, I decided that meant in part that I needed to stop crying. I wasn't going to show any tears. And so I built up these walls around me to try to protect myself emotionally from being vulnerable before people, from letting them see me hurt. What I didn't realize at the time is that by building up these walls, trying not to show vulnerability or weakness or tears, it also prevented me from being able to experience any real joy or peace. And I kind of became this analgesic lump of a junior higher for a few years. And the strange thing is, is that I didn't withdraw socially. In fact, if anything, I probably engaged socially more. Because again, it's a defense mechanism. As those walls were built up, I was afraid if I withdrew, people were going to notice and see that something was wrong. And I didn't want their pity. And I didn't want them trying to get inside the walls. And so I found myself in the middle of social circles, being the funny guy or being the goofball or making people laugh. And I thought, maybe if I can make people laugh, then it really doesn't hurt as bad as it feels. A couple years later, 15 years old, summer camp. God tore down these walls. And suddenly I found myself vulnerable and completely exposed before God. And suddenly I had more emotion than I knew what to do with. <laughs> it was just coming out. So I came home from summer camp and found this beat up, busted up, five string, junior sized guitar laying in a dumpster, near a dumpster. I don't remember where it came from exactly, but 
started learning how to play it. And then in that year to come, I call, in retrospect, my year of healing, I would come home from school, go in my room, and I was learning how to worship Jesus. And I would sing my love songs to him, the ones I could remember from camp, or I'd write my own, but there was a sense of, of this state of just openness, being fully exposed before God emotionally. And in that state of brokenness, I was able to find healing. I was able to let his love work in me and over me. And I was able to find forgiveness. It was only through that place that I felt like I was able to find forgiveness and was able to forgive my dad for all of his sins and shortcomings, past, present, and future, even though some of the roughest years were yet to come. But there was a freedom and liberty in that. But in the mid-late 90s, internet was becoming more prevalent in the home. How many remember dial-up? You've got mail. There was AOL, or for those of us who were too cheap to pay $24.95 a month, there was a Juno or Net Zero, where I think you got like up to 10 hours free before you had to start paying. Um, but I remember the first time my mom brought me a phone bill that had charges for a pornographic website on it. And I was busted. And she was disappointed in me. And I was disappointed in me. And suddenly all these memories of the shame and stuff that I had tried to bury from five and tried to be healed from at 15, suddenly it came flooding back. As I believe I felt like God had been maybe even calling me into ministry through, through this healing process. And the enemy, the one who stuck it in my face in the first place, is the one who came back as the accuser and said, oh, you think you can stand up in front of people now? You think you can leave worship in front of people? Look at all this garbage in your life. And you know, he accused, told me I wasn't good enough, couldn't do it, didn't have what it took, and I bought it hook, line, and sinker. And for the next couple years, I dove into a deep porn addiction. And unfortunately, I feel like this is one of those topics we don't talk about enough at church or even in the Christian home. And depending on the home you grew up in or the part of the country that you grew up in, these sort of conversations may have just been considered inappropriate. They're just not something you talk about. And I apologize for that because we're hearing about it everywhere else. You turn on the TV, you're hit, being hit in the face with it. You open up social media, you're being hit in the face with it. You drive down the street and there's a billboard, you're being hit with it. And it's a shame that the one place on earth that should be the safest place to talk about it is not. And I think there are many who struggle with some of those unspeakable sins in the church. They're just afraid to talk about it and it has ripped them up because they don't have a safe place to talk about it. And I wish I had more time to go into our story. I wish I could talk. My dad's story is amazing. As we sat there on the floor laughing and crying a few weeks ago and just reliving it. And even from, from how he got into drugs in the first place, watching his dad as a teenager, watching his dad die of colon cancer and going in a month's time from 160 pounds to 80 pounds and then being there when he took his last breath. And every day for the next four years when he would sleep, he would dream that his dad was still there only to wake up every morning and re-experience the loss and the pain and looking for something to take the edge off the pain, looking for something to take the mind off the pain. But this morning, even though that's just a small glimpse, I think, of our story, and you're like, well, why are you even sharing this? It's just weird. Well, okay. <laughs> a couple of reasons. Sorry, I got these calluses, and I just realized I'm looking at them a lot. So if you see me looking at my hands, just, like, get my attention. Um, but our stories are important, I think, for, for multiple reasons. For one, my story doesn't belong only to me. Amen. My story belongs to you. 
The same as your story does not belong only to you. Even if it's only partially written, your story belongs to all of us. It's the edification of the body of Christ. Amen. Revelation 12, 11. It's talking about the church and the church age. It says, and they overcame him, him being Satan, him being the devil, him being the accusing one. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb, which was Jesus' perfect atoning work on the cross, and by the word of their testimony. And isn't it interesting that though salvation is 100% from God and he has done 100% of the work, yet we cannot overcome sin in our own lives through that alone, but through the power of shared testimony. And that's why Christian community, that mosaic, is so crucial because we cannot live the Christian life on our own. There are no such thing as a lone ranger in this. Amen. A renovation vision statement Probably heard it till you're blue in the face, but it is to raise up influencers through spiritual transformation to be salt and light where they're engaged and influential. And again, that where we use the word influencers, you could just as easily substitute in any of these other words, disciples, witnesses, reconcilers, because it all means the same thing. And through spiritual transformation, so transformation is not something that we can do. Transformation only comes from God. And that is, again, the picture of the farmer and the seed. The farmer can plant the seed. The farmer can water the seed and add nutrition and till the soil and even get the right kind of shade and water. But the one thing the farmer cannot do is make the seed grow. And only God can make the seed of transformation grow in your life. Amen. But we as a church, as a body, as that mosaic community, want to try to provide the best possible conditions for that growth to happen. So into reconciliation. The dictionary defines reconciliation as this. The restoration of friendly relations. Doesn't that sound nice? <laughs> Today on Jesus and Pals, the restoration of friendly relations. No. Um, and the biblical concept taken from 2 Corinthians 5 that we just read is the restoration of fellowship between God and humanity and the resulting restoration of human relationships. So the Bible defines reconciliation in the New Testament primarily as the Greek word katalage. In the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word kafar. Most commonly, it means to make atonement. Isn't that a great word, to make atonement for? And atonement means literally to cover in pitch or bitumen, which was like an ancient asphalt. So when you look at, like, for example, Noah's Ark and how it was covered in pitch to make it watertight and sealed and where it could be sustained in the water and the sea, that's this word atonement. This covering there. Dr. Michael L. Williams says, When the word atonement is broken down to its historical parts, it means a condition without tension. When Christ died on the cross for us, he removed the tension between us and God. His shed blood reconciled the conflict between us and the Father. With this in mind, reconciliation has its biblical foundation in the atonement of Christ. I love that. A condition without tension. And I wonder, is there a relationship in your life where maybe there's tension? Here I've got a little rubber band. just want to look at what tension looks like. I tried this experiment earlier this week with a larger rubber band. That might be easier to see, but I injured myself. So we're going to try with a smaller one. <laughs> I'm healed. I'm able to cry, but I just don't want to do it right now. All right. Um, but here, if you can see it, is this thing. When my thumbs are together, when they are in unity Touching together, there's slack in the rubber band. There's no tension. But as my thumbs begin to separate, 
There's almost this pulling back together. There's like an awareness that something is not how it should be or as it was intended to be. And there's something that's wanting to bring them back together, but something keeping them apart. And it takes strength to keep tension in a relationship. And so in a relationship, say there may be a conversation or topic that in your, your marriage has been kind of bookshelved or put on, put on the back burner and you just don't really talk about it because every time it comes up, it just kind of explodes and gets bigger and bigger. And so it's easier just to avoid it. But then maybe in addition to that tension, there's tension in your relationship with your boss at work. And there's just these words going on in your head that as a Christian, you probably shouldn't be thinking, but, you know, and you want to tell your boss this stuff, but you're afraid if you do that you're going to lose your job, or you're going to be demoted, or there's going to be something to deal with later. And then, but then maybe you've got a teenager at home, and they, you know they're hiding something from you, it's lying, but the tension builds and builds and builds until it breaks. And it always breaks. Because we are not meant to live with that consistent tension in our relationships. And you know, you can forgive someone and still feel tension in that relationship. And so I want to talk just a a little bit. What is the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation? Because they're not the same thing, although they're used in conjunction a lot. But forgiveness is kind of the first step toward it. So forgiveness is this. Forgiveness is the principal decision to give up your justified right for revenge. Or your right to be right, as Pastor Kurt says. The forgivenessproject.com says this following hurt, pain, or atrocity, forgiveness can potentially bring resolution and freedom. It is a practical way of preventing the pain of the past from defining the path of the future. Let me say that again forgiveness is a practical way of preventing the pain of the past from defining the path of the future. Amen believe the warthog on the Lion King said it best when he said, put your behind in your past. (laughs) No? Okay. Y'all weren't watching much cartoons in the 90s, I guess. Um, That's not great. It doesn't have, you don't have to let the pain of the past prevent you from living into all that God has for your future. Or as Kurt said over the last several weeks, you can't go back and write a new beginning, but you can start today and write a new ending. So why does forgiveness matter? Lewis Smead says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover the prisoner was you. Pastor Kurt says, harboring unforgiveness is like lighting yourself on fire and hoping the other person dies from smoke inhalation. (laughs) But forgiveness is also given. It does not require the other party even to be involved. Dr. Ryan Howe says this, forgiveness is an internal process where you work through the hurt, gain an understanding of what happened, rebuild a sense of safety, and let go of the grudge. The offending party is not necessarily a part of this process. Let go of the grudge. So if forgiveness is our decision to give up our justified right to be right, then reconciliation refers to the restoration of fractured relationships by overcoming grief, pain, and anger. Karen Bronis says, Reconciliation is a societal process that involves mutual acknowledgement of past suffering and the changing of destructive attitudes and behavior into constructive relationships toward sustainable peace. And here's the biblical concept of true reconciliation then between people relies first that those people be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ on the cross. It's the only way that we can find true biblical reconciliation. Okay, so what does the Bible teach us about it? Number one, we need to make reconciliation a priority. 
Matthew 5, 21 through 23, this is Jesus' words on, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, don't you love when he says that? <laughs> Probably not. You have heard it said, but I tell you. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which was an Aramaic term of contempt, will be answerable to the religious court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Are you glad you came to church this morning? (laughs) Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So Jesus is saying, if we have an unresolved disagreement with someone... He's like, you better go take care of it now. <laughs> He's like, in fact, why don't you just skip out of church, go take care of your business, and then come back, and you can finish, you can finish your church service. Ephesians 4 says, um, don't let the sun set while you are still angry. So there's this concept and idea that reconciliation is urgent. It's a priority. It's today. And maybe that grudge that Dr. Howes was talking about, it's been holding on to you, or you've been holding on to it for days, weeks, months, years, and today believe is the day to let it go our mission statement here at renovation is to live by faith be known by love and be a voice of hope to live by faith means we begin to make changes now today for the future that we hope for because we know that when there is hope in the present there is power in the future amen so the bible teaches us we need to make reconciliation a priority it also teaches us when doing so we need to approach it with boldness humility and discretion. What's the, uh, the magic phrase we use here for these types of conversations? Yeah, crucial conversations. Kent gets brownie points or scout points. Anyway, <laughs> the point is crucial conversations are these type of conversations where there are high stakes, high emotions, differing opinions, and you're afraid that if you tell the truth, you might lose a friend, but we have to approach them boldly. There's a concept that we use when talking about this sort of boldness is what we call vulnerable from the strong. So there's vulnerable from the weak. That's what I was as a junior hire, excuse me, where I was afraid that any attack at my vulnerability would just tear me down and destroy me. Vulnerable from the strong, rather. Pastor Kurt, in his uh, devotionals he did last spring, the Uncommon Devotionals, he defines vulnerable from the strong position is when a person intentionally makes themselves vulnerable for the good of the mission. A point person in the military is exposed and vulnerable not by being weak, but by being courageous and strong. Jesus in John 10, 18 proclaims, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. When we look at the cross, do we see vulnerability? Yes. Was it harmless? No way. Edward Yarnold says, we were made in God's image and he willingly sacrificed himself for others. The more we come to know God, the more we understand our true nature, the more natural self-sacrifice will become for us. Maybe vulnerability is a true strength. Maybe sacrificing yourself for the good of others is not a sign of weakness, but is the greatest power the world ever knows. Matthew 18, 15 says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Be bold. Just between the two of you, discretion. If they listen to you, you have won them over. That's listening with a humble heart, knowing that you have their best interest at heart. That brings us to 
the second phrase in our mission statement, be known by love. And how are you promoting the good of others? Are you healthy and whole, or do you need healing? Because remember, true reconciliation between people can only happen when they are first reconciled to God. All right, so if reconciliation is a priority, and if we see how to do it, then what gets in the way? Why are these conversations sitting on a shelf somewhere? I think the first thing that gets in the way of reconciliation, plain and simple, is sin. Sin separates us from God and from each other. And when we look back even, we see the evidence of that in 2 Corinthians 5, our main text when we read. We read in verse 18 that all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we see that this is all from God. That is 100% from God. There is nothing we could do or to earn what he has done for us on the cross. And yet in verse 20, Paul implores us on Christ's behalf for us to be reconciled to God. So what is it? Is it all God or do we have a role in this? And the factor in there is sin. Sin separates us from God. Sin destroys the image of God that was in us at creation. And it's through his reconciliation on the cross that we can be reconciled, but we need to be willing to let the sin go, to confess it, and to repent of it. So sin gets in the way of reconciliation. Second thing I think it's in the way of reconciliation can be identity issues. We don't really know who we are and the authority that we walk in in Christ, and so we become almost fearful or feel like we don't have the words even to say in these sort of situations. Have you ever been mistaken for someone else? (laughs) So, anyone know who that is? Oh, wait, let's go back. Go back. Does anyone know who that is? This guy's name is Carson Daly. He was an MTV talk show host back in the day, and now he hosts a late night show. So I've been told by two or three people over the course of my life that, that I look a lot like this guy. Um, here's another one. This is Ron Livingston, right? He was in a movie called Office Space, and I've probably been in other stuff. I actually had a girl come up and ask for my autograph in Carabas one time. She thought I was Ron Livingston. Okay, I'll take that. Um, here's another one I was told I look like, David Cook. He was a contestant on American Idol several years ago. And I think at the time we had a similar haircuts or something, I don't know. Um, but that was one. This one is kind of funny. Sir Elton John. <laughs> so I had someone tell me I look like this, and I think it's because at the time I had white rim glasses. Um, I don't know. Here's the last one, though. See what you think of this. Jack Black as Nacho Libre. I think my family mostly thinks this one um, of me. I think similar facial expressions or mannerisms or something. I don't know, but but uh, hey, I'll get me some stretchy pants and we can we can be friends. So so anyway, so the point of, though is this: the world may look at you and think certain things about you, may make judgments about you based on not even really knowing the real you what they see on the outside. The world may even try to define you. Say, okay, you're in this age group, and so you are this, and this is your function in society. The world may even try to shame you or throw the luggage on you. Remember talking about guilt as being guilt, or being feeling bad about something you've done. Shame is feeling bad about who you are because you are not who the world says you are. And the world, friends, experiences, 
family. They've all said, this is who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. And God says, no, I have another reality, another definition of who you are. And that is in the person of Jesus Christ. I just worry this morning that as long as we are wearing what the world says that we are, that we will not be able to find true reconciliation because we don't know who we are in the first place. Here's a few promises and declarations of who you are in Christ according to Scripture. And this is, if you've asked Christ into your heart, then this pertains to you. Number one, you are completely forgiven sanctified, made forever perfect before God, and hence completely reconciled to God. Amen. Galatians 2.16 says, Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And just as your works and what you've done does not define who you are, so your works cannot earn you salvation, but it is a free gift of grace. Ephesians 1.4 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Before the creation of the world, he chose you. Colossians 2.13-14 says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Amen. Do you believe that all the labels the world has thrown on you as to who you are? They're nailed to the cross. And they're stinking in the sun. <laughs> I'm not going to read the scriptures for all of these, but I'll put this document with all these declarations in the scriptures up on the website along with the sermon upload later this afternoon because if you have an opportunity, I just believe that reading, looking up these scriptures would be an encouragement to you this week as you remember who you are. But here's a few more of these declarations in Christ. All that is part of your old self, all that is sinful and contrary to God has been crucified. In Christ, you are made new and given Christ's eternal resurrected life. You are indwelt with the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of God Almighty. You are redeemed and set free from the curse of the law. You are seated in heavenly places and share in the eternal inheritance Christ purchased for you. You are hidden with Christ and united with Christ. You are made a participant in the eternal love which flows out of the triune Godhead. God the Father completely redefines your state of being. Whereas you were once in Adam and were by nature an object of wrath, you are now in Christ and are an object of his eternal and unconditional love. The Father has chosen you and made you holy and blameless in his sight. Amen. You're beginning to see a little bit of a picture of who you are in Christ and how that differs from how the world defines you. So sin gets in the way of reconciliation. Our identity issues get in the way, I believe, of reconciliation, understanding who we are. A third thing that gets in the way, I think, are walls. And not just the walls that I built up around myself, thinking that I was protecting myself when in reality I was preventing true healing from happening. But I think there's also walls that we maybe build up around people groups. Andy talked a few weeks ago with the teens about this concept of racial reconciliation. And we don't see it as prevalent here in the Southwest as I know it is in certain parts of the country. 
But Ephesians 2, starting verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Come to the sandwich sign. So Paul was saying in their context, there was, what was happening was there's this group of, called the Jews, those who had grew up in the Jewish tradition and now they were finding salvation in Christ. But then there was this other people group called the Gentiles, also called the Greeks, and they had grown up among the uncircumcised. And so they were a different people group and those who were Jews were thinking somehow their salvation was a more pure gift and Paul was saying, no, there is no you in them. And sometimes I wonder, are there people groups where we stand on one side almost of an invisible barrier and, and separate ourselves as us and them? Whether it's I'm a Christian, they are them. Or I'm a part of this political party, but they're the other side. Or maybe, sorry, is that one too, too soon? No? Okay. Okay. But, you know, and maybe it's, well, I'm a contributing member to society, and, and, but they are leeches. And here's the thing. Jesus came to tear down the dividing wall. Because in him there is no free nor slave. There is no Jew nor Gentile because they both have access to the Father by one spirit. And this morning, I just believe that as God wants us to be reconciled not only with him through Jesus Christ and not only with our brothers and sisters within the walls of the church community, but ultimately be part of the reconciliation work that is going on around the world as he is redeeming creation. Amen. So, okay. So what do we do with this? Any ideas? No? Okay. Then I'll say what I had. Um, <laughs> first, let me say this. Um, there may be some in here, and this just feels like intense, or maybe this feels like maybe you don't have scars from past experiences as much as you have open wounds right now, and you don't feel like you're even in a place where you can even think about reconciliation or forgiveness because you're just trying to stop the bleeding. And if that's you this morning, I just want you to hear, if nothing else, that God loves you. He's got you. He is for you. And we are for you this morning. But for the rest of us, I want to ask three questions. One is, are you reconciled to God? Is there sin in your life? Have you been carrying around the shame or guilt of a secret addiction or sins of your past or negative self-talk. And this morning, I just wonder, would you have the courage by God's grace to confess it and be healed and be free? Why carry that baggage around any longer? We want to be transformed, a spiritual transformation. Pastor Kurt mentioned last week Romans 12, 2. It says, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Why? So that you may be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's a lot of people looking for God's will in their life, but few that are willing to submit to the relationship that it requires to understand it. Wesleyan District Superintendent Jimmy Johnson, not the Cowboys coach. Don't get excited, Bobby. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> he's a district superintendent at Wesleyan Church, and I remember a summer as a high schooler, I was asking him, he was speaking at our camp, and, and I was asking him, how do I know God's will for my life? Because I was in a season trying to explore, okay, what do I do now after high school? And maybe there's a season in your, in your life that you're on the brink of just saying, okay, now what, do, what am I supposed to do about this? Or now I'm done with college, what do I do about work? Or I'm done with, and now I'm done with work, what do I do about retirement in this next stage of life? Or what about now we've got kids entering the house or leaving the house? And uh, how do you know what God's will is? And he said, God's will is 99% relationship and 1% direction. I think a lot of us are looking for a sign. <laughs> and he says, no, it's about that relationship. And how do we understand and enter into that relationship with Christ is through being transformed, through the renewing of our mind. Philippians 4, 8 through 9 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. There's that condition without tension. Through the renewing of our minds, by meditating on these things, by, by reading God's word and allowing God's word to read into us. How do we hide God's word in our heart? Psalm 119, 9 through 11 says, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How do we keep ourselves from sinning? By hiding God's word in our heart. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is alive and active. Alive. That Bible in your hand is not just words on a page. Amen. It's not just information. It is transformation. It is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitude of the heart. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen. We need to be in the word so that the word will be in us. And then we'll be able to take every thought captive. And when the accusing one steps up and says, that's not just what you've done, that's who you are. You'll be able to know in an instant after having hidden God's word in your heart. No, that's a lie. That's a lie. This is truth. That's a lie. We no longer need to be slaves to that sin. Amen. So are you reconciled with God this morning? And second, are you reconciled with others? Or is there a condition with tension in your life. Back to my 12, 13 year old self. Said dad left home. And for the next eight or so years, probably, there was an open invitation left on the table by mom. Say, if you can stay clean for an entire year, you can come back home. 
Unfortunately, for that eight years, was not able to do that. And in 2001, one day after my 21st birthday, their divorce finalized. Dad moved to Pennsylvania. Three years later, Mom remarried to a great guy named Paul. I got the blessing of an amazing another brother, Dylan, out of the deal. Um, and here's the thing. We fast forward, our lives were separated in some different ways, lost track of each other at times, just weird things happened. But a few years ago, God opened up the opportunity and the door for dad to move back out to Arizona with us. Now he lives in the West Valley with my sister and brother-in-law. And I'll tell you, the reconciliation that we've seen is redonkulous. <laughs> Don't know whether that's a word or not, but it applies. Um, it's just been amazing to see. You don't often see in blended families where the dad and stepdad are able to drive up to the family cabin for a week at a time to work on stuff. You don't necessarily see where, where former ex-spouses are able to drive to doctor's appointments or to and from church. And a lot of you have seen my mom and dad coming from church and just assume they were married, didn't know they'd been divorced for 16 years and that she's remarried to someone else. But life unexplainable apart from God being present in his reconciliating power on the cross and in our lives. And it's still happening. A few weeks ago, my mom went to a... Uh, once a year, she does a retreat with her sister. She has four sisters. And they weren't even Catholic growing up. But she had two brothers, too. <laughs> it's a true story, right? Was it in Boston where you showed up at a Nazarene church or something and the usher thought for sure you guys had meant to arrive at the Catholic church down the street? Big old family. Anyway, it has nothing to do with anything. But, um, but her and her sisters, they do this annual retreat up in Pine Top at the cabin. And dad went over before mom left with $100 and just gave it to her and said, you know, why don't you treat your sisters to dinner on me? Realizing that they had been a large part of her support in many of those years where she had been alone. And not only them, but their, their husbands and their families had just been a support to us. And in acknowledging that and that out of a heart of gratitude and thankfulness for all that they had done, for him, he wanted to treat them to that. And reconciliation continues continues. And I'm just so blessed to be a part of my family. And said so I barely touched the story. I was re rehearsing our family story earlier this week, and I was hoping to get in enough details to where it all made cohesive sense. But just the story part was about 45 minutes. <laughs> so I gave you super condensed this morning, but we'd love to share it with you. Ask any one of us anytime. It's just been amazing. Um, and this morning, you may find yourself thinking of a relationship or situation. It's like, well, that's great, but, but my dad was physically abusive. Or maybe it was another relationship or something else. Maybe it's, it's someone that you're afraid of now and it would not be safe for you to enter into and try to attempt reconciliation with that person. Maybe they're deceased and you feel like your chances are gone. But here's the thing. You could start today with forgiveness and not letting the pain of the past define your path for the future. Question number three, are you helping others reconcile with God? There's a little four-letter word in the church called evangelism. It's not really four letters. That's a joke, man. Tough crowd, sorry. 
<laughs> but I feel some of you act like you're allergic to it at times. Some of you are thinking of that. Yeah, I love that St. Francis of Assisi quote where preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words because it means I don't have to use words and you're not off the hook. <laughs> Amen. Because it's always about salt and light. It's always about presence and proclamation. We need to be that voice of hope. But here's the reality this morning. You are a minister of reconciliation. This is not something you opt into once you reach a certain point in your Christian walk. This is part of who you are from the get. You are a minister of reconciliation. You are the royal priesthood. We are God's ambassadors. We, the church, are God's plan A for the world, and there is no plan B. You say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Okay, well, you have the gift of your story, and your story is to be shared. Well, yeah, but what if I share, and then what if I face persecution? Okay, well, first of all, what's so wrong with persecution? (laughs) If it weren't for persecution, the church may never have left Rome. If it weren't for persecution, we wouldn't have seen it spread around the world. In fact, the places, the countries that are most persecuted, Christians these days, are the places where Christianity is exploding the fastest. There's part of me that says, bring that on. Why not bring it on? And I think part of it is because we're, we're afraid. Proverbs 28.1 has been a verse that has just been working on me for the last month. I try to set a new scripture on my screensaver on my phone each week, but this one's been on here for a long time. But here's the thing. It says, the wicked man runs or flees, though no one pursues. And I feel like so often that's us in our Christian witness, that we're fleeing the conversations that aren't even happening. It's like we're afraid to get into them. And maybe, maybe our idea is like, okay, well, I'll try it soft. I'll be at work, and I don't want them to make horrible fun of me. And so maybe just when they ask, you got any plans for this weekend? I'll somehow function in, yeah, I got this church thing. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I got this church thing going on. No. Um, But here's the deal. The righteous are as bold as a lion. And are there conversations, whether it's evangelism or are there conversations, whether they're crucial conversations we need to have with loved ones or people in our life that we're running from for whatever reason, because we're afraid, yet the righteous are as bold as a lion. Well, one more story. I wasn't going to tell this one, but we're doing okay, I think. So, um, I was in Kenya a few years ago, several years ago, actually. Um, had the opportunity of going on a safari, and we're driving through in this big rickety bus, and we're seeing all the animals. Got the water buffalo, and the elephants, and the zebra, and the rhinoceros, and the hippos, and the giraffes, which are just so weird looking, but they're so cool. And, um, and then we come up, the van comes to a screeching halt in the middle of this clearing, and everybody's flocking to the side of the bus with their cameras. And we go over there to look, and there laying in the middle of the field is the king of the jungle himself. There's a lion. And if you've never seen a lion in the wild like that, it is a totally different picture than seeing one that's in captivity. Because there is no mistaking that he owns that jungle. There's no mistaking that all authority in that jungle belongs to him. And when he gets up, everything else moves around him because he is the king of the jungle. 
And we who are in Christ this morning, we are direct heirs to the king of all kings. And that boldness, boldness like a lion, all authority in heaven and on earth that was given to the person of Jesus and then through his reconciliation on the cross gave us the gift of reconciliation, that power is at work within us too. Let's embrace it. The last line of our mission statement is be a voice of hope. Bill Hybel says the local church is the hope of the world. And I believe that with all my heart. We have this hope within us. And some of us are a little too timid to give, a little too timid to give voice to it. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, this morning, I just thank you for for every life that is represented in here, for every life that may listen to or watch even the recording at some point later, because they matter to you. God, I thank you that you have given us the privilege of the ministry of reconciliation, to be your salt and light where we are already engaged and influential. And God, I pray this morning that that if there are any conversations that need to happen, that today would be the day that they begin in reconciling with loved ones or estranged ones. Maybe there's a phone call that needs to happen this afternoon. Maybe there's someone in this room that you need to walk across and talk to. I don't know. But God, I pray that you would give us this boldness, as bold as a lion, vulnerable from the strong, willing to put ourselves at risk for the betterment of everyone and ultimately for the mission of your kingdom. Thank you that you are the faithful God that you have shown it over and over and over again in this morning. Just ask that we would be found faithful in you who came and died and reconciled and are reconciling to you. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen? You good? Amen. Well, go have a good week. Have an uncommon week, as Pastor Kurt said. You are dismissed.